that doesn't add what I want, the pizzazz. I want pizzazz. But welcome to True Crime for Dummies. I am your host, Jada. And I'm your other host, Jazz. And today, we have some stories to tell you guys about two distinctive murders. Um, but I guess first, we should maybe start off with saying a bit about ourselves. Um, we are related by we blood. We are one. <laughs> we are not one, but we are related by blood. We're sisters. Um, and this is our first episode of our podcast. Um, we want to focus mainly on, I guess, people of color because we feel like they're super marginalized in just everywhere everywhere. (laughs) investigations in particular so that's what we're going to be doing i anticipate that we will be doing that for multiple episodes because there are definitely a plethora of cases that we could talk about probably hundreds of thousands that don't get the same media coverage as a little white girls that goes to temple university so without further ado we're just going to go ahead and chop right into it this is um i guess Jada will be going first, and then I'll go second. We're probably just going to do these two murders, but, you know, we'll see where it goes. Take it away, Jada. Okay, so today I'm going to talk about Samuel Little. Now, Samuel Little was known as the choking stroke killer because he often masturbated during his crimes. And that's, first of all, I don't know who named him that. That sounded very on the head, just also very disgusting to just name him that. It was very odd. All the naming choices that could have been chosen. I yeah. could have chosen anything else. But it captures his essence. You know exactly what he does from the moment you read that. <laughs> I don't like to know that, though. That, like, at first, I didn't know what they were talking about. And then they immediately said it. You know, just choking stroke killer. And I was like, what was he stroking? A cat? Is mm. it an animal? Nope. His pee-pee. Yeah. Very not nice. Not nice. Mm-mm. He was confirmed active between 1970 and 2005, though it is possible he continued to 2012. He has confessed to 93 murders, and FBI crime analysts believe that the confessions are credible, but law enforcement has only been able to verify 50. Let's begin at his early life. Samuel Little was born June 7, 1940 in Reynolds, Georgia, to an unnamed mother that he claims was a teen prostitute that abandoned him. Authorities believe his mother may have given birth to him in jail. His family moved to Lorraine, Ohio, where he was raised by his grandmother. He attended Hawthorne Junior High School, but dropped out due to difficulties. Little began his crimes in his teen years, and though it just started with petty theft, it grew into rape, kidnapping, and murder. During the 1950s, he moved state from state for all of these offenses. By 1975, he had been arrested over 25 times across 11 states. During many of his prison days, he learned how to box, showing promise as a prize-winning boxer, but ended up not pursuing that career. It is not reliable to say that he actually was a prize-fighting boxer and was good at it. He claims to be, though, so we'll go with it. Right. It's his story. We're just living it. He served 10 years for various crimes and was able to escape two murder convictions before his first conviction of murder stuck in 2014. Little's confirmed murders were between 1970 to 2005, which means he killed for at least 35 years and was not caught for 44. The reason he was undetected for so long is because many of his victims, both confirmed and alleged, were low-profile, high-risk. This means that they were prostitutes, homeless, drug addicts, and women of color. Little said to the New York Times, 
I never killed no senators or governors or fancy New York journalists. Nothing like that. I stayed in the ghettos. On September 5th, 2012, Little was extradited from a Louisville, Kentucky homeless shelter for a narcotics charge in which, in which authorities used DNA testing. His DNA came back on the bodies of Carol Eileen Elliford, killed on July 13th, 1987, and on Guadalupe Durate, killed on September 3rd, 1987, and Audrey Nelson Everett, killed on August 14th, 1989. A few more states opened up to test Little's DNA on some of their unsolved women's cases from the 70s to the late 80s. In total, Little's DNA was tested on 93 bodies. FBI.gov has an updating list of Samuel's unsolved confessions. Today, on September 18, 2020, that list has 49 names, most of which Little has drawn pictures of. Five of these women have details on who they may have been and their murders. His unsolved victims. Victim 1. She may have been named either Mary Ann or Marie Ann. They would have met in 1971 or 1972. She would have been an 18 year old trans black woman in the Miami, Florida area. She was between 5'6 and 5'7 and may have weighed 140 pounds. They met twice. Once at a bar called The Pool or The Pool Palace near 17th Avenue in Miami and the next in a bar in Overtown. Little stated that Mary Ann lived with multiple roommates between the Brownsville and Liberty City areas. A roommate of hers asked him to buy a shaving cream, so they both left in Little's gold four-door. Neither returned. Mary Ann was killed in a driveway north of Highway 27 near a field. Little disposed of the body in the Everglades and believes she was never found. Victim 2 her name may have been Ruth. Little met her in a transit area in North Little Rock, Arkansas between 1992 and 1994. She was black and between the height of 5'5 and 5'7. They shoplifted together. The FBI believes that she sold the stolen goods. This was before Little was arrested at a Kroger. Little's car of the time was a 1978 yellow Cadillac Eldorado or a yellow Dodge. He drove her to meet her ex-boyfriend named Bear who was thought to be deceased. They drove to right outside of Little Rock where he strangled her and hid her body in the cornstalk or near a cornfield. Victim 3. In the summer time of maybe 1984, Little met an unnamed white female outside of a strip club in Covington, Kentucky. She was believed to be 25 between the heights of 5'5 to 5'7 and at average weight. Little described her as a hippie with short blonde hair and blue eyes. She asked for a ride to Miami, Florida, where she claims her mother lived. They spent, town, they spent time in the downtown area near Vine Street. They drove through northern Kentucky, and on a hill near I-75, he strangled her in the back of his car, leaving her there. Victim 4. 1993. Little would have met a thin, dark-skinned black woman in her 40s in the Las Vegas area. He would have been driving his 1978 yellow Cadillac Eldorado. Little believes the woman had short hair naturally, but wore a long, light brown wig. She pointed out a black man who was between 19 and 25 as her son. Little took her to a motel where he strangled her to death. He dumped her body in a remote road on the outskirts. It is believed she was never found. Victim 5. In New Orleans, Louisiana, in the year 1982, Little would have met a black woman between the ages 30 to 40. 
The woman was attending a birthday party with her friends and one of her two sisters. She is described as honey-colored, between 5'8 and 5'9, with mid-length straight hair. She told Little that she lived with her mother and gave him her house keys. They drove to the Little Woods exit off I-10 towards the canal where Little killed her and left her body. At the moment, Little is serving time in prison. Because of his age and health, authorities don't know if they'll be able to identify his other victims without the help of the general public. This information was grabbed from FBI.org, New York Times, Biography.com, and Wikipedia. I just really can't believe that this old farty man was, like, committing all of these murders this whole time. But, like, it makes perfect sense because, like, let's get real. Like, police investigations, that sort of stuff is, like just now starting to be like adequate and even like not really still like it's it's definitely better than it was before but it was def it was a joke previously well, also little not to like praise him but he is kind of good at hiding bodies right he had one woman in the everglades nobody come on it's a swamp she's that's the perfect place to look for a body that's the perfect place for a body to be de- decomposed like very quickly though Think of like all the animals that live in the Everglades. Don't want to eat them. You ever you ever read the little Everglades poem in school? It's like the canary birds, the Everglades, the blue flowers, the red flowers, the white flowers. Okay, I, Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah, it just described as the Everglades is a place with like a lot of bugs, a lot of birds, a lot of things that would eat you. Honestly, realistically, I don't really think he killed all of those people. Like I don't, I think he is now i think he's just trying to extend you know his dead i i kind of subscribe to the idea that he killed all those people just because he's like drawing pictures of them um unless i mean there is quite possibly the idea that he is someone who is like falsely confessing because he kept up with all these missing people but i don't know uh because like the last victim that we read was at like a birthday party with her friends and one of her two sisters and he knows that she lived with her mother mm-hmm. and she gave him the key keys to her house yeah maybe she was drunk yeah that most definitely but like that's it's just a lot going on with him it's like either he has like a lot of information about his victims or just like zero he didn't know them at all yeah. He just drove in places. But maybe that was, like, kind of his thing. You know, there are some people who have, like, a particular M.O. who are just like, yeah, I'm going to stalk these people, like um, Richard Ramirez. But I'm saying, like, Richard Ramirez would, like, kind of watch people and, like, kind of have an idea. But there were also times, and this is why it took them so long to catch him, there were also times where Richard Ramirez would just literally, like, kill somebody. Like, mm-hmm. no sort of preparation at all. He's only got, like a chicken wing bone in his back pocket, mm-hmm. like, and he's going to kill this person. And then there's mm-hmm. other times where he's got his whole little murder bag going. He's got a ski mask. He's got pliers to cut the door open and all kind of mm-hmm. stuff. So, I don't know. I think that there's obviously something wrong with this man. And if he is or if he has committed all of these crimes with the different, like, you know, modus operandis of them, I think that that can just further – I think that that only explains, like, his, his mental illness – there's, like, the urge to be, like, obsessive-compulsive with, like, finding the perfect person to kill. And then there's also, like, the, I just need someone to attack right now. Like, I've got to, like, feed this craving. It's just odd to me. I guess I could say that. That's all I could really say is, like, how much time he spends with his victims. Like, no matter 
how much he knows about them or not, he always spends so much time with his victims, specifically the ones that they're not able to aren't solve. Aren't those, aren't those only of. his unsolved victims, though? Yes, specifically, I'm talking about the ones that they haven't been able to solve. Mm-hmm. Specifically, those victims he spent a lot of time with. Unlike his other victims, which, like, Richard Ramirez, he just just went one day and killed them. And, like, and strangled them. So I I don't know. You spent a lot of time with these people. You met one of these people multiple times. You know a lot about them. This person had roommates who met you. You know that they're trans. It's just a lot that he knows about them to not have stalked them. Or at least maybe he did stalk them. He yeah. just didn't admit it to maybe them. Maybe he just doesn't want to be thought of as an old creepy guy, you know, watching people out of his window. He would have been young then. He would have been young then. How old is he now? Like 90. Yeah, he would have been like 60. No, he would have been like 30. In the 80s? Older than his victims. He would have been older than his victims. Yeah, he would have been 31 for his his first unsolved victim that we talked about. Not an old creep. An older person. Who's a mature creepy. creep. <laughs> <laughs> that does it for Samuel Little. Um, and I am going to start my kind of two-part series, two episodes of the Atlanta Child Murders. If you live in the Atlanta area, you're probably familiar, but this case is extremely long. That's why I'm cutting it into two parts. This first part on this episode is going to be about his victims, and the next episode will feature his arrest, the trial, um, all the evidence they had against him, and you know what the other theories are. And I'll just say right now that I speak for Jada and I when I say that I don't really think he did all of them. Um, Did he kill people? For sure. But not everyone that's included in this list. But we'll get into that. So, from 1979 to 1981, the Atlanta child killer stalked the streets of the city. Of the 29 murders, most of the victims were boys and all of them were black. My sources are Murderpedia, Wikipedia, All Things Interesting, and True Crime XL. 14-year-old Edward Hope Smith was last seen on July 21, 1979 with his girlfriend at Campbellton in Fairburn after leaving the Greenbrier skating rink. Smith attended Therrell High. I guess that's right. Therrell. Alfred Evans, also 14, disappeared four days later. Their bodies were found on July 28th in a wooded area by a woman looking for cans. It was believed that Smith frequented the house across the street to hang out and play karate. His cause of death was a 22 caliber gunshot wound in his upper back. Evans' identification took over a year. His cause of death was ruled probably asphyxiation by strangulation. And for the duration of this case, probable asphyxiation is going to be like the main motive of, or not main motive, but the main kind of cause of death. But there are definitely some outliers that we're going to talk about um, towards the end. So just keep that in mind. The next victim was 14-year-old Milton Harvey, who was last seen at Citizens in Southern Bank on a yellow 10-speed bike on 3885 Old Gordon Road Northwest, approximately three miles away from home, taking a $100 check to pay a credit card bill. A week later, a neighbor found his bike beside a pine tree off of Sandy Creek Road near Charlie Brown Airport. A prisoner provided information on a 27-year-old 6'3 suspect in the case who he said was a homosexual into handcuffs and whips and was capable of violence. That is another common theme in this investigation. People you know, blaming homosexuals for acts of pedophilia or murder, violence, um, which is definitely not true. I hope we all know that by now, that being gay doesn't necessarily mean that you are a child toucher. Neither or it's being into handcuffs or whips. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's exactly right. 
That is exactly right. But that's going to be a common theme. There's so many people in this article or in articles that I found that basically kind of exploit or out their sexualities as a way to kind of convince the public that they were involved in something or, you know, just kind of evidence when being gay isn't really evidence for killing people, but go off, sis. The skeletal remains of Milton Harvey were found somewhere off Desert Road at Red Rhine Road on the south side by a man picking up cans. His cause of death was undetermined and his case remains unsolved. Yusuf Bell attended fifth grade at Dunbar Elementary and went to Warren Memorial Boys Club. He was an extremely gifted kid. Yusuf was last seen with no shirt or shoes near the intersection of Big Daniel and Fulton getting into a blue car after buying snuff for a neighbor. Three black males were questioned. The witness who saw him get into the car said the driver looked like Yusuf's father, John Bell. His mother, Camille Bell, claimed this witness was untrustworthy because of her drinking problem. Snuff? snuff is like, I think it's like cigarettes? Oh. Like dip. Unlike the other cases, Yusuf's disappearance garnered media attention due to his mother's relentless pleas for help. Mr. Bell insisted that Yusuf would be found safe. He also failed a polygraph test, and for those of you who don't know, polygraph tests are hugely unreliable because they basically just test like your heart rhythms and it's basically a test of are you nervous and you can be nervous without being guilty so just keep that in mind yeah and some people are sociopaths and don't get nervous or can control their heartbeat in a way no i feel like i would no like i don't think i'm a good liar i don't think that facially i would pass I don't think you would pass a polygraph test because you laugh. Oh, snap. They track the laughs, too? No, but I'm saying your heart rate probably goes up when you laugh. Yeah, but they, they track my laughs? You're hooked up to the machine. Oh, my God. I thought they would take those out. No. Oh, yeah, I would pass. Oh, I'd be laughing the time. I wouldn't pass. Never mind. A school janitor found Yusuf's body in the elementary school's crawl space. He had been hit over the head twice, and the cause of death listed was asphyxiation by manual strangulation. The bottoms of his feet had been washed clean. Police did not immediately link this disappearance to the previous killings. Yusuf's funeral was a major event. City officials, black leaders, and politicians of every race gave their condolences to the family. Even after he was found, Camille continued to articulate her displeasure with the efforts of the police. On March 4th, 1980, the first female victim was abducted. After finishing her homework, 12-year-old Angel Lanier left her home in southwest Atlanta. When she didn't come home in time to watch her favorite TV show, her mother, Venus Taylor, contacted the police. Lanier was found six days later, strangled and tied to a tree with electrical cord. Her mouth was stuffed with a pair of panties that Venus Taylor claims did not belong to her daughter. There was possible sexual assault, but the medical examiner did not include this information in their formal report. There were two suspects that were eventually cleared of the murder. The day after Lanier's body was found, 10-year-old Jeffrey Mathis left his home to buy cigarettes for his mother in the late afternoon. This errand was only a few blocks away from his home. His mother, Willie Mae Mathis, sent her other sons out to look for their brother when he didn't come home. Mathis was last seen by a friend getting to the backseat of a blue car, possibly a Buick. A second witness came forward 13 days after his disappearance. They claim to have seen Mathis in a blue Nova car driven by a white adult man. They also claim that days later, they were carjacked by the same white adult male. The police did little in response to this testimony. Jeffrey Mathis's brother also reported seeing a blue Buick in the driveway of a house Jeffrey frequented. Shortly thereafter, boys began complaining to their principal that two black adult males attempted to lure them into a blue Buick. This information was turned over to police and once again, completely dismissed. I found 
in a lot of cases, I am confident to say, definitely cases where there are people of color involved, the police like fumble. They really, really fumble on every little detail. Um, and it's, it's just, it's really annoying. It's really annoying. On May 19th, 1980, the body of 14-year-old Eric Middlebrooks was found bludgeoned to death. Around 10.30 the night before, he supposedly went out to repair his bike. Police suspected that Middlebrooks witnessed a robbery resulting in the slaying, but there was insufficient evidence to back this theory. On June 9th, 12-year-old Chris Richardson went missing in his middle-class neighborhood on his way to a local pool. On June 22nd, a 7-year-old Latanya Wilson went missing. A neighbor claimed they saw a black man remove the window pane from the Wilson's apartment, climb into the window, and leave with the little girl in his arms. By this point, the extended wave of disappearances and murders panicked parents in the city. The government was struggling to ensure the safety of the neighborhood kids. Nonetheless, these seemingly linked murders continued on. A summer of death was just beginning. That's amazing right there. The witness seeing somebody climb into an apartment and take a child. Yeah, not saying anything until someone's actually missing. Not calling yeah. the police right away. Just and then the police just not just go. Once it does get to the police. Just... Yeah, but I also think that their testimony was, or not testimony, but their tip was probably not credible because I believe there were two other children sleeping in the room. You you're not gonna wake those other children. You a grown man climbing through a window. You can only take one child. He's climbing through a window. But what I'm saying is, you were quiet enough to take not only take the window off quietly, climb into there quietly, get the child out quietly, get the child into your arms quietly, and leave quietly. So you did all of that quietly, but the neighbor saw you. The neighbor was just coincidentally looking out their window and seen. Maybe the neighbor did it. That's also true. Only a day later, 10-year-old Aaron Weich disappeared. His body was found 24 hours later beneath a six-lane highway bridge that passed over railroad tracks in DeKalb County. The medical examiner ruled the cause of death as asphyxia. The assumption was that Aaron fell off the bridge and landed in a way that prevented him from breathing, even though his parents maintained that he was deathly afraid of heights and would not have done that on his own. Camille Bell, Willie Mae Mathis, and Venus Taylor formed the Committee to Stop Children's Murders, a.k.a. STOP. The group pressured the city government and sought support from white corporate power structures. On July 6, nine-year-old Anthony Carter disappeared around 1 a.m. He was playing hide-and-seek with his cousin. He was found stabbed to death behind a warehouse less than a mile away from his home the next morning. The Atlanta police still believed each case was separate and not connected at all. With the help of STOP, the government formed a task force to further their investigation. And you would honestly think that forming a task force would possibly help us catch the guy. That's not what happens at all. Uh, they also fumble, like, just the entire investigation. They, they weren't trying. Just saw we could say. Yeah, they honestly. Weren't. Honestly, it was just poor police work. But you know how that goes. July 30th, 1980, 11-year-old Earl Terrell went with some friends to the South Bend Park swimming pool. Earl began to misbehave, and the lifeguard threw him out of the pool. After that, Earl disappeared. Earl's aunt, who lived next door, got a phone call from a person stating, I've got Earl. Don't call the police. Shortly afterwards, the man who sounded like a white southerner called back saying, I've got Earl. He's in Alabama. It'll cost you $200 to get him back. I will call back on Friday. Police learned of a child pornography ring that was operating right across the street from South Bend Park Pool. John David Wilcoxon was convicted when police found thousands of photos of children pornography displayed. Police dismissed the connection between Wilcoxon and 
Terrell because the photos were of white boys. A witness claimed that Earl Terrell had been to Wilcoxon's house several times. Also, there is some disagreement that the photos were not actually all of white boys. 13-year-old Clifford Jones had come to visit his grandmother in Atlanta and was found strangled by some unknown ligature on August 20th. His body had been put in a dumpster wearing shorts and underwear that were not his. Correct me if I'm wrong, Jada, but that's like the second person that they found in clothes that don't belong to them or with clothes around them that don't belong to them. Mm, I think that might be the third person, the second boy. Off the top of my head, I can't remember who all it was, but there were several serial killers operating in California in the 80s and the 70s, like all at once, like in the same area of California. Yeah, you have to think about it, like if a whole bunch of people are going missing and they're not being found, like. Yeah. You could just get in there. It's definitely possible that in a major city, there are multiple psychopaths just going on a rampage. Police were presented with a strong suspect that was the manager of a laundromat. According to Chet Detlinger, who is an investigator on the case, he was widely known for homosexual gatherings. Bernard Headley sums up the case against this suspect. Three youthful witnesses saw the manager go into the rear room with a black boy. One of them said he saw the manager strangle and beat the boy, then carry his body out the trash container. Two polygraph tests were administered to the laundromat manager. He failed both, according to FBI records, even though he admitted that he knew Clifford and that Clifford was in his laundromat the evening of August 20th, 1980. Medical experts had determined that the time of death was between four and six hours before the discovery of Clifford's body, which would have placed the laundromat manager with the boy around the time he was killed. Once the official task force was formed, the police had to decide which cases to include in their investigation. Those specially assigned cases, which represented murders that fit particular parameters, were compiled into a list. This list did more harm than good during the media hype and is still a source of controversy. The list led to more people misunderstanding the facts about the cases than their understanding of them. This was largely due to the inaccurate and incomplete information gathered about each of the victims, which were oftentimes caused by negligence, ignorance, and mismanagement by authorities. In many instances, reports conflicted with one another, bodies were misidentified, reports were sometimes changed or lost, and crime scenes completely destroyed. The task force unit ignored more than 60 cases, mostly because they failed to meet the parameters that police were continuously changing and because they failed to notice the geographic and social connection between the victims, both on and off the list. After Wayne Williams' arrest, more than 20 people were murdered, some of which could have also made the list. They never did because police stopped adding names to the list after Williams was in custody. On September 14, 1980, 10-year-old Darren Glass vanished. Shortly afterwards, his foster mother received an emergency phone call from someone claiming to be Darren, but when she answered the phone, the line was dead. The police ignored the case, however, because Darren had run away several times before. The black leadership, churches, and community at large were mobilizing along a number of fronts to deal with this crisis. Activities ranged from prayer visuals, safety education programs, and even regular searches for the missing children. The Atlanta government had even gone so far as to bring in psychic Dolly Allison, who had assisted in some high-profile cases. Not a psychic. <laughs> Late in the evening of October 9th, 1980, 12-year-old Charles Stevens had gone missing. He was found murdered the next morning on a hillside. Stevens had died from suffocation with an unknown object. At the crime scene, the evidence had been contaminated by a police officer when he threw a blanket over the corpse of the boy. The fibers from the blanket were mixed with the fibers already at the scene. The fibers found were thought to have come from the interior of a Ford LTD. More specifically, red interior. They were not teaching those police officers anything. There was no academy. You walked into the police station and you said, I want to be a police officer, and they gave you a badge. That was it, obviously. 
this like the first principle of a crime scene. Don't touch anything. Don't don't put don't put anything over the body that hasn't been examined yet. Buddy isn't even out of here. You over here coming? You need. You know what? Maybe he was a pedophile. Oh my god. That would be the only reason he want to cover up the body. Cause why else? I mean, he could have been like. Let live. Okay. He could have been. Like, disturbed by seeing the body of a dead kid. Because I know I'd be disturbed from seeing the body of a dead kid. Because that happens a lot when people... did touch, touch the body? He didn't touch it. He put a blanket over it. Even after someone murders another person, they'll put a sheet over the body. Because after the murder, they're like, oh, damn, I did that. Crazy. I can't stomach that. I gotta put a sheet over it. A drug dealer went to police a day after Stevens' body was discovered. He told police that the same day Charles Stevens disappeared, he got into the car of a client to sell drugs. He added that he knew the man to be a pedophile and had on occasions been offered money to find the driver young boys with whom he could have sex. In mid-October, the skeletal remains of Latanya Wilson were found in northwest Atlanta, not too far from her home. It was impossible to determine the cause of death or whether she had been sexually abused given the state of her body's decomposition. During the fall of 1980, the mayor of Atlanta issued a citywide curfew. It was feared that the killer, or killers, would strike during Halloween, possibly targeting trick-or-treaters as they walked the city streets. Then there was nine-year-old Aaron Jackson, a friend of earlier victim Aaron Weich, was found dead beneath a bridge in the South River in November 1980 close to where Watch's body had been discovered. Jackson's cause of death was documented as probable asphyxia. Like Charles Stevens, it was believed that Aaron Jackson had been smothered. 16-year-old Patrick Patman Rogers was a karate fanatic and singer. He was often spotted at Bruce Lee movies or singing with his friend, Junior Harper. He had known many people within his neighborhood. He was also connected to at least 17 of the murdered victims, both on and off the list. Rogers had disappeared on November 10, 1980. He, like the other victims, including Darren Glass, was thought to have run away. Therefore, he was not added to the list for quite some time. This is one of the things that really gets me about true crime cases before the 2000s. Along with crappy police work, there's also the idea that, like, people just run away. Like, kids who are seemingly good kids, or adults even, just abandon everything and like leave and i'm sure some people do go totally gone girl and just disappear off the face of the earth but like you can't you can't not investigate and just immediately use that as your first like your first go-to at least try to talk to the family get to know the kid do a bit of investigating do a little legwork before you say yeah it looks like they ran away but you just saying it because it came in and it's a kid or it's an adult even not cool. Yeah. I get it, like, if the, he's, like, a known runaway, maybe. But the person has, like, multiple instances where they've just left. But for a person who has not ever done that, mm-hmm. why would they have started now? Exactly. It, it makes no sense. And they do it literally all the time. Like I said, even with adults, they're just like, yeah, you know, no one's legally bound to, like, stay contacted with their family. But, like, why would you leave behind your house, your kids, your car, your wallet, all your, your stuff. Dog. Yeah, that makes no sense. Stuff that you could take with you especially. Exactly. A week before his disappearance, he had told his mother that he had feared the killer was close. A friend's mother told the police that Rogers was looking for her son. He had to tell him that he had found someone to manage their singing careers. It was a man named Wayne Williams. Rogers was found on December 21st, 1980, face down in the Chattahoochee River. He died from a blow to his head. Luby Jeter disappeared in January of 1981. He was 14 years old. 
Even though he fit all the parameters required by the authorities at the time to make the list, it took two days before the police began their investigation of the crime scene after Jeter's body had been found in February of 1981. The body of Jeter was extremely decomposed when happened upon by a man walking his dog through the woods. When he was found, he was only wearing his underwear. The medical examiner believed that Luby died from asphyxiation from manual strangulation. Jeter had been connected with two white male pedophiles. The child molester connected with the earlier victim, Early Terrell, and another unidentified man who would later be connected with List victim, William Barrett. An acquaintance of Jeter had seen him with the molester linked to Terrell on several occasions. The convicted child molester that had been linked with Terrell was also never a suspect in the murder case of Jeter. Terry Pugh was 15 when he had disappeared in January of 1981. He was last seen at a hamburger restaurant on Memorial Drive and was a friend of List victim Luby Jeter, who had gone missing the same month. An anonymous white caller had phoned the police and informed them where they could find the boy's body. Pugh was found near Interstate 20 on Sigmund Road in Atlanta. He had been strangled by some sort of ligature. The same caller had also indicated that the remains of another victim could be found on the same road. Years later, those remains were finally located but never identified. Do you think that white people and black people of the time sounded different? You can tell what kind of accent they had, but you can't tell someone's color over the phone. Like, I, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't subscribe to that idea. Do you think I sound black? And that's the thing. Like, what, what is sounding black? It really just depends on where you grew up and the demographic of where you grew up. Because you're going to adopt the accent or the, the speech patterns of the people that you're around. So. Do you think we sound the same? No, I sound sexy and you don't. Whoa. <laughs> Patrick Balthazar was 11 when he disappeared on February 6, 1981. A man cleaning up the grounds one week after he had gone missing found Balthazar's body in an office park. The boy had been strangled to death and the rope thought to have been the murder weapon lay close to the body. Before his death, the task force had received a call from the boy saying that he believed the killer was coming after him. Unfortunately, the task force failed to respond. Again, crappy police work, crappy task force throw it all away like I can't believe hundreds of thousands of dollars went to not only the police this year or these years that this person was active but also this task force that did absolutely nothing that same month 13 year old Curtis Walker disappeared and was immediately added to the list Curtis had lived with his mother and uncle in the Bowen Homes housing project in Atlanta his body was found on March 6 1981 in the South River his death was caused by asphyxia probably strangulation with a cord or narrow rope that same day, FBI agents found the remains of Jeffrey Mathis, missing almost a year. His funeral was captured on national news. Joseph Jojo Bell was 15 when he disappeared on March 2, 1981. Two days after he had gone missing, a co-worker of his who worked at the popular seafood restaurant named Captain Peggs told his manager that Jojo had called him and told him he was almost dead. The boy said Jojo had pleaded for his co-worker to help him before hanging up the phone. The manager reported the call to police. Several days later, JoJo's mother received a call from a woman who said she had JoJo. The same woman had called back and spoke with Mrs. Bell's two other children. Mrs. Bell immediately called the task force, who never contacted her back. Frustrated, she contacted the FBI, but it was too late. JoJo was found on April 19, 1981 in the South Bend River. His cause of death was, once again, probable asphyxiation. I wonder what they talked about. Who? The woman and the two kids. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a really good detail. Timothy Hill, JoJo's friend, disappeared that same month. And that's another thing, too. A lot of these people are friends, neighbors, like, I don't know. Have hung, up, hung out together at least once. Yeah, they're like, not yeah. all of them are interconnected with each other, but there's like at least two groups that I'm thinking of in my head were like 
four of these boys knew each other, five of these boys knew each other. And I just think that's strange. I just, I don't know. Tom Terrell's next door neighbor saw Timothy the day before he disappeared on March 12, 1981. A young man who had also known Timothy and Tom told police that the two frequently engaged in sex together. Tom would usually pay 13-year-old Timothy for sexual favors. Terrell himself admitted to police that he had engaged in sexual acts with the boy. Another witness reported that Timothy spent the night at Terrell's after missing his bus the day before he was reported missing. That same witness was the last to see Timothy. He claimed that the night before he disappeared, he saw from his window Timothy was talking to a teenage girl. Timothy was found on March 30th, 1981 in the Chattahoochee River. He was the last child victim to be added to the list. His cause of death was also listed as asphyxia. Terrell was never suspected in the disappearance or murder of Timothy or Jojo. That same year, residents of a housing project named Techwood Homes took to the streets in protest that the police were not doing their jobs in protecting the public. The group of residents decided to take matters into their own hands and they formed a bat patrol. The patrol was made up of residents armed with baseball bats, hoping to prevent murders from happening in their community. On the exact day that the residents had taken up that patrol, and in the very housing project in which it was formed, another person, Eddie Bubba Duncan, disappeared. Bubba Duncan was the first adult to make the list. He was 21 years old when he disappeared on March 20, 1981, and was found dead on April 8, 1981. He, like Timothy Hill, had been dumped in the Chattahoochee River. Eddie had several physical and intellectual disabilities. With Duncan's death, the parameters of the list changed to encompass older victims. Immense sums of money were offered as rewards to help find the killer at large. Much of the money was donated or raised by corporations and famous figures, such as Muhammad Ali, Burt Reynolds, and Gladys Knight and the Pips. In 1981, President Reagan issued more than $2 million to the city of Atlanta and the task force to use towards the investigation and for citizens who needed help in dealing with the stress of the murders. Other monies that were raised and donated were mostly used to help the investigation as well as help the families of the list victims. Unfortunately, only a few of the victims' families ever received the money that was raised or donated. The city and nonprofit organizations poorly controlled the money. Much of the money fell through the cracks of the system, misplaced, or lost altogether. The second adult to make the infamous list was 20-year-old Larry Rogers, no relation to Patrick Rogers. He was missing for more than two weeks in 1981. He was not found in a river, unlike the three victims before him, but in an abandoned apartment. His cause of death was documented as probable asphyxia by strangulation. That April, they also found the bodies of Michael McIntosh, John Porter, and Jimmy Ray Payne. 17-year-old William Barrett disappeared on his way to pay a bill for his mother. The next day, he was found strangled and stabbed. The last victim to make the list was 27-year-old Nathaniel Cater. He lived in the same apartment building as Latanya Wilson. It is unknown as to exactly when Cater had disappeared. What authorities did know was that he was an admitted homosexual prostitute, drug dealer, and alcoholic. A witness who had known the suspect in the death of Clifford Jones said Cater admitted to selling himself, his blood at the blood bank, and dope in exchange for money. That concludes the list of possible victims for the Atlanta child murders. In the next episode, I'll dive deeper into the arrest and trial of believed killer Wayne Williams. Wow. Wow, this is amazing. I love that case. That case is, is one of my favorite cases in the world. You're lying. Yes. Yes, you're lying? No, it's one of my favorite cases in the world. Well, what do you think so far? Oh, most death, most death, they're terrible at their jobs. You know, this is how I know I'd be, like, an amazing investigator. Like, that's just, I just, I know I have the investigating bone in my body. I... Oh, and I most definitely don't think that those um, adult victims should have really been included. 
Yeah, yeah. most of those kind of seem like one-off cases. Yeah. Like a little disagreement, little scuffle here. Mm-hmm. That sort of thing. And the adult with the disability who got, you know, got right as his neighborhood was making the neighborhood watch to stop that from happening. Sounds to me like somebody in the neighborhood did that. Definitely an inside job. Or, I mean, honestly, at the same time, though, it definitely could be because I don't I don't believe that Wayne Williams did all of these things himself. Um, it definitely could be sort of similar to the Golden State Killer where it's a police officer or oh, an ex-police yeah. officer that kind of knows their way around the city a little bit, knows what the police won't will and won't do, knows, you know, who's on what team, mm-hmm. who's a slacker, who's taking donut breaks and like going to strip clubs during a shift mm-hmm. and not doing what they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. So Who's, who's picking up prostitutes instead of answering um, answering dispatch calls. So, I don't know. I think my mom was saying that she, that they're reopening this case, the mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms, because she doesn't believe that he did these murders. And I would really like to see sometime in the near future some of these unsolved murders, or even, like you were saying, the adult murders, all of the murders that could have been included on the list but weren't. I really like to see all of those kind of solved or at least get some sort of progression in 2020 because what else are we doing? There's like a massive virus, so mm-hmm. there's plenty of time to in a way, do I'm, some like work. In a way, I'm kind of glad they didn't include them because they didn't do well on the ones that they included. Right. So I do wish they were investigated so we would see if they had any DNA on them to even, you know, test them with because now we can't. Most of their bodies have likely been buried, and if they're not buried, they don't have DNA on them at right. this point. It's just a lot off about the case. Like, the lady earlier who was saying, like, I wonder what she was talking about with the two kids when she called their house and said that she had their child. And then less than, like, a day later, another person called their house and said, no, I have your child. That brings me to another conclusion, though, that you just reminded me of. There's not really been a lot of DNA evidence in any of these crimes. Like... Besides the fibers from the right interior and the alleged sexual assault, there's no mention of, like, fingerprints anywhere or shoe tracks, any sort of basically identifiable pieces of information at all, which I think is really strange, and that kind of brings me back to the idea of maybe this was a police officer or possibly these murders that we are talking about right now weren't this person's like first rodeo maybe it was you know highly um what's the word i'm looking for will you do something on purpose you commit a crime on purpose what is that called you think about it beforehand it's considered premeditated yeah yeah maybe these cases were or these crimes were like highly premeditated this person planned everything from you know beginning to end but you know i don't know i just feel like you kind of slip up as a murderer maybe it wasn't multiple people but like uh multiple people individually but maybe it was like a group of people all together mm-hmm. if that makes sense like yeah. almost like a gang initiation kind of thing like shakespeare yeah like shakespeare it also could be about the dna that the police just weren't good at their jobs because they, they're they weren't good at their jobs like, yeah like how they don't know if really any the victims were sexually assaulted because the coroner just didn't do that they just no the coroner did but um one of the first victims i can't remember her name right now it escapes me but basically there was 
evidence that she had had sex, but they couldn't say that it was assault, even yeah. though she was, like, nine. Mm-hmm. So, like, I don't really think nine-year-olds are having, like, consensual sex. It would have been illegal. Either, Either way, way, you should have yeah. investigated that. I also believe, and we'll kind of investigate this a little bit further in the next episode, but I also think that this particular time in Atlanta was, like, heightened racial tensions. So, mm-hmm. I believe for a little while people thought that the suspect was white and they were specifically targeting black people almost like hate crimes. That concludes today's episode. We definitely had some fun talking about these cases and I guess we'll see you next time or not.